This is Dr. Russell Blaylock, and you're listening to the Blaylock Health Channel. to uh, talk today on this podcast about a subject dear to my heart, and that's hypoglycemia. We're going to particularly talk about reactive hypoglycemia, and I want to discuss just a few things about this condition that interested me over the years of doing research. Now, uh, I have a personal interest in hypoglycemia as well, because my family, my father, my brother, myself, have suffered from reactive hypoglycemia, so I better understand what patients and people are going through that suffer from this problem. Now, one of the big questions I'm frequently asked is, why do my fellow physicians deny that reactive hypoglycemia even exists? Typically, if you talk to patients who are suffering from this, what they'll tell you is they've been to dozens of physicians, and each time they go, the the physician uh, does numerous tests. Uh, They put them on medications, try first one thing and then another. Uh, And in the end, what they're told is, well, this seems to be all in your head. I think you're under a lot of stress. Uh, This may be a manifestation of depression. The two major reasons that physicians reject the diagnosis of reactive hypoglycemia is that uh, the medical experts set the level for diagnosing reactive hypoglycemia too low. Uh, For instance, they say, uh, in fact, the level has to be at 40 milligrams per deciliter before you can make the diagnosis. Now, this is far too low. This is a, a level at which if you're having an insulin overshoot in a diabetic, uh, that would be true. But uh, we see far uh, lesser reductions in glucose causing significant symptoms. Now, research has shown that taking a glucose tolerance test in people who report these symptoms will indeed produce hypoglycemia. Now, what the researchers are basing all this on and the, the physicians that treat patients was that they found that if you gave the glucose uh, not on an empty stomach, as you do in the glucose tolerance test, but with a regular uh, mixed meal that they uh, hypothesized was a typical meal, that you didn't see this plunge in the glucose level. And therefore, in a real setting, uh, this wasn't the case. In other words, we didn't see this. Uh, The problem is that's not reality. Uh, People get hungry or thirsty. They grab a drink of some kind, a sugared drink, a a soda, and uh, it's full of glucose or or sugar of some form, the simple sugars, and they drink this on an empty stomach. And they may do this repeatedly throughout the day. They eat snacks or pastries or pies or cakes or donuts when they don't have a full meal on their stomach. And this primes the pancreas to produce a hyperreactive release of the insulin, and that's what causes the problem. So in the research world, they ended up being confused by their own research. Now, you have to think in terms of how does the brain look at hypoglycemia? And I'm talking about your subconscious reactions to hypoglycemia, because a lot of the reactions are not done on a conscious level. The important distinction is between a rapid fall in glucose and a slow fall. For instance, it's been shown in a number of studies that if you slowly reduce the blood glucose level, most people can tolerate pretty severe levels, low levels of glucose without a lot of symptoms. 
for instance, if you do a 24-hour fast, your blood sugar could go down to 60 or, or uh, even 50s. And you may not show a lot of symptoms. You'd be a little hungry, a little weak, but that's about it. Not the typical symptoms of reactive hypoglycemia. Now, that's with a slow decrease in glucose. But what happens when your blood sugar falls rapidly, that is, say, within 20 minutes or 10 minutes, your blood sugar goes from 90 uh, milligrams per deciliter to, say, 65 or 70. It's this rapid fall. Your brain is getting the message that something's terribly wrong, that the blood glucose is falling rapidly. And as far as it's concerned, this doesn't seem to be something that, that might end anytime soon. Therefore, it has to operate and drive counter-regulatory mechanism to try to fix this problem. Part of that counter-regulatory activity is stimulating different hormones like epinephrine from your adrenal gland that can produce anxiety, can produce trembling and muscle spasms. Uh, some of the symptoms we see with this reactive hypoglycemia. And I'll show you another reaction that's even more important. So the rapidity of the fall of the glucose seems to be even more important than the actual level that it will fall. And that's completely ignored by uh, the vast majority of physicians. Now, the other question we have to answer is, are the neurological symptoms due to brain starvation? Because most people think, and certainly most physicians think, that the reason you get uh, symptoms with hypoglycemia is because the brain cells are not getting enough glucose. They're, they're starving. Well, the answer to that is no, it doesn't seem to be the major reason that you can develop these symptoms. Now, the brain does consume a massive amount of glucose. 25% of all the glucose that's in the body is consumed by the brain, which makes up, in an average person, 2% of the body weight. So this, this relatively small portion of the body is consuming a huge amount of the body's glucose because it's essentially the major fuel for brain cell function. Now, when the brain glucose level falls, it triggers a release from glia cells in the brain of a substance called glutamate. Now, glutamate is a neurotransmitter. It's the most abundant neurotransmitter in the, in the brain. When it's released from the cells in the brain, it can produce a condition we call excitotoxicity. Glutamate is an excitatory neurotransmitter. What that means, it makes your brain excited. So that if you give glutamate and raise the glutamate level in the brain, a person becomes extremely excited and jittery and nervous and, and uh, a lot of different reactions we associate with hypoglycemia. Also, the hypoglycemia impairs the, the working of the enzymes that are in brain cells that help protect the brain against glutamate damage. Now, once you eat something after you feel these hypoglycemic symptoms and you eat something, or particularly if you take sugar, uh, some, a simple carbohydrate, uh, there's a burst of free radicals that are produced in the brain, and that further impairs uh, the removal of this glutamate from the brain and makes things worse. So it's actually the release of glutamate triggered by the hypoglycemia that's producing a great number of these symptoms. Now, uh, when the brain is uh, excited uh, by this excess extracellular glutamate in the brain, it acts on a particular area of the brain, uh, a nucleus called the amygdala. Now, the amygdala is connected to some important parts of the brain that would create some of these symptoms. For instance, the prefrontal cortex, the hypothalamus. Now, the amygdala itself is the center for things like anxiety, fear, violent behavior, it makes people easily aggravated. 
and it can even lead to a sensation of, of impending doom. The amygdala also connects to the hypothalamus, and this is uh, connected to the counter-regulatory uh, hormones, particularly epinephrine and corticosteroids. Now, epinephrine aggravates these same symptoms that are caused by the glutamate, that is, the, the nervousness, the fear, the aggravation, the, the uh, violence. All of these things are, are worsened uh, by the presence of epinephrine. So it, it, the counter-regulatory effect can also uh, make things worse in terms of symptoms, even though it's an attempt of the body to correct the, the uh, low blood sugar. Now, what we know is that a child's brain is a lot more sensitive to hypoglycemia than is the adult. For instance, a 70 milligram or 70, uh, 2 milligram per deciliter level of glucose in a child can produce these symptoms rather than a 55 or 60 we would see in an adult. And we also know that the child is more sensitive to the effects of caffeine. Now, this is one of the big problems with drinking uh, sodas like uh, Coca-Cola or Pepsi is that they have caffeine mixed with sugar in the, in the ones that are sweetened. And the caffeine is aggravating the effect of the hypoglycemia on the brain and on the adrenal gland. So it worsens all of the symptoms of hypoglycemia. And one of the big steps in improving your symptoms is get off the caffeine or certainly reduce the amount of caffeine that you're taking in. The symptoms also depend on your activity level. People that are very physically active have far fewer symptoms than people who are couch potatoes. So if you're not engaged in a lot of activity, so you have a job where you sit in a uh, chair all day working on a computer, your symptoms will be much worse than if you're uh, an athletic person or have a job where it's very physical. So your level of activity makes a big difference as well. You should also be aware that there are other things that can trigger hypoglycemia besides sugar. Uh, for instance, amino acids. One of the uh, most powerful insulin-stimulating amino acids is glutamine. Uh, and that's the effect of this hypoglycemia as these amino acids are stimulating the cells in the pancreas that manufacture insulin and release insulin. So glutamine's way at the top of the list. Glutamate, uh, what we call branched-chain amino acids like leucine, isoleucine, and valine, uh, which the bodybuilders use a lot and many of the bodybuilding supplements are are high in those. Uh, tyrosine, tryptophan, and taurine, all of these are known to be powerful stimulants uh, for insulin release and can worsen hypoglycemia, particularly if they're taken on an empty stomach. Now, if they're uh, taken with whole meals, they have less of an effect. We also know that many of the phytochemicals can trigger hypoglycemia. For instance, quercetin, curcumin, luteolin, uh, apigenin, cinnamon, ginger, can all stimulate uh, hypoglycemia and can produce a pretty severe hypoglycemia in people who have reactive hypoglycemia. Now, all of these can be found as isolated supplements in uh, health food stores and etc. Arlipoic acid, which is used to uh, treat a number of conditions and is a very powerful antioxidant, can significantly lower blood sugar, particularly if taken on an empty stomach. Now, one of the things you need to understand is the difference between the glycemic index and the glycemic load. And this is one of the things we've learned is that uh, while there are certain foods that tend to produce a drop in blood sugar more than others, for instance, uh, uh, things like a, a, a potato, an Irish potato will produce 
significant drops in blood sugar as compared to uh, something like spaghetti. So there's a, there's a big difference in the effect on the insulin secretion by different foods. And it seems to be vary somewhat among people as well. So some can eat spaghetti without problem, some can't. Now the glycemic load is, takes into consideration the glycemic index, that is the foods that are most going to act like a, a simple sugar, and the actual volume that you're consuming. Let's say you go out to eat and, and it has mashed potatoes in what you order, and so you're eating a, a steak or a chicken. And if you eat a lot of the mashed potatoes, you're going to have a hypoglycemic response. If you eat just a small amount, you may not have a hypoglycemic response. So the volume of these high glycemic foods makes a lot of difference. There's also an effect on the absorption of these foods and the hypoglycemic effect and how much fat is in it. If it has a high fat in it, particularly saturated fats, that slows absorption of these carbohydrates and so you have less of a hypoglycemic effect. And high fiber diets also tend to reduce the hypoglycemic effect. And this is what was happening in those studies I told you about where they added the glucose to a mixed meal. Is if there's a lot of fat in the meal, then of course you're not going to get uh, that much of a response. Now, one of the other connections that I, I wanted to discuss briefly, and that is alcoholism and hypoglycemia. It's known that uh, if you look at alcoholics, a very high percentage of them have reactive hypoglycemia. Some say as much as 90%. Some say 100% are uh, hypoglycemic. But we know it's very high and that people who have familial reactive hypoglycemia are much more likely to become alcoholic. The reason for that is several. Uh, one is that alcohol itself can precipitate hypoglycemia. And this would trigger the release of, of uh, the glutamate, as we talked about. Alcohol is a brain toxin, so it can produce uh, these, uh, some of the symptoms that you get that we associate with hypoglycemia. But the real link is that the hypoglycemia is inducing the release of glutamate, and the alcohol is in response to that. Now, glutamate is driving also the addiction pathways in the brain. These involve such things as the nucleus accumbens, the medial tegmental nucleus, and the prefrontal cortex. Now, these pathways in the brain appear to be the things that's most concerned with every kind of addiction. It doesn't matter whether it's addiction for food or addiction for alcohol or drugs. They're all operating through this pathway, and this pathway is mainly operated by the neurotransmitter glutamate. So excess brain glutamate uh, worsens addictions, and that's part of the the effect of the alcohol. The alcohol is dropping the blood sugar. The drop in blood sugar causes the release of brain glutamate, and the glutamate drives the addiction centers. So the other thing that is related to it is that alcohol is a rather potent blocker of glutamate receptors. That is, it interferes with glutamate function as a neurotransmitter. This has an effect of tranquilizing the alcoholic. That is, as we said, the alcoholic has reactive hypoglycemia, so they have fear, anxiety, depression, all these things associated with the, the excess uh, glutamate caused by the hypoglycemia. And because of that, they want something that's going to calm them. Well, if alcohol is a potent inhibitor of the glutamate receptor, they feel better. It's like a tranquilizer. It's an anti-anxiety agent. Uh, it's as powerful as any of the drugs. 
The problem is, is that when the alcohol diffuses out of the bloodstream and is metabolized, in other words, when it disappears, these glutamate receptors remain hyperactive. And so now you have this overshoot, so the person is having excess stimulation of glutamate in the brain. It stimulates the addiction centers. It stimulates anxiety, fear, aggravation, violence, all these things that we talked about. And so the alcoholic feels much, much worse as they begin to sober up. So the response is to drink more alcohol. Once again, they're tranquilized. So this drives the addiction. Now, if a person who is a chronic alcoholic suddenly goes to cold turkey and he stops all alcohol, what happens? Well, most of us are familiar with delirium tremens, what we call DTs. And DTs are, are this severe reaction in which there's trembling and muscle spasms and uh, intense anxiety and fear reaction and hallucinating, all of these different things that we associate with DTs, and they can have seizures. All of these symptoms, or the vast majority of them, are due to these hyperreactive glutamate receptors in the brain. And if you block these glutamate receptors, it's been shown to prevent DTs, or most of the symptoms of DTs, including the seizures. Uh, so, uh, again, that would be why the alcoholic keeps drinking to prevent these terrible glutamate-related symptoms, this excitotoxicity that's going on in the brain. Now, the question is, how does hypoglycemia cause behavioral symptoms like depression, violence, suicidal behavior, uh, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and bipolar conditions, or worsen these conditions? Well, the latest research shows that all of these conditions are caused by excess glutamate in the brain or hyperactive glutamate receptors in the brain. We used to think that depression was due to abnormalities in tryptophan, uh, but actually it appears that it's mostly due to excess glutamate. One of the other connections that's rarely talked about is the role of inflammation in all of this. There is a very powerful link between inflammation in the body and this excitotoxicity. And I gave it a name for the scientific literature, immunoexcitotoxicity. So what we're seeing is when there's inflammation in the body from whatever cause, it stimulates these receptors just like hypoglycemia does. And it causes a release of high levels of glutamate from the brain, exactly like hypoglycemia will. Now, the interesting thing is, is alcohol is inflammatory. And when we look at chronic alcoholics, we see that they have high levels of inflammatory reactors. Other inflammatory disorders like lupus or rheumatoid arthritis, uh, atherosclerosis, multiple sclerosis, could make the symptoms worse by increasing glutamate receptor sensitivity. And it's thought that this is why these people develop depression before the symptoms of the disease even occur, because the inflammation is occurring before the disease presents itself. So that's a link as well. So what happens is if you do anything that increases your inflammation, it worsens all of the symptoms associated with uh, hypoglycemia. Now, most important in controlling hypoglycemia is your diet. For instance, we know that high sugar intake is inflammatory. A high intake of omega-6 type fats is intensely inflammatory, and Americans consume about 50-fold higher omega-6 fats than they need for good health. The omega-6 fats include things like corn oil, safflower oil, sunflower oil, peanut oil, soybean oils, and even canola oil. Uh, we're consuming way too many of these oils, and when these oils are oxidized, they produce even worse immunoexcitotoxicity. 
and they raise the brain glutamate levels. Soy is also very high in glutamate and can worsen these symptoms. Low fiber, low fat diets, of course, will worsen the hypoglycemia. Fluoride worsens excitotoxicity, as does aluminum, lead, mercury, and cadmium. Therefore, vaccines, both being an immune stimulant directly and the fact that they are often contaminated with aluminum and lead, makes them a candidate for worsening inflammation in this process. Now, interestingly, we know that exercise can improve the symptoms of hypoglycemia. They also improve the symptoms of depression and many of the psychiatric problems. And that's because exercise reduces inflammation in the body and in the brain, and it causes the brain to release a number of protective components, like growth factors. On the previous podcast, I discussed the dangers of MSG and other food additive excitotoxins. So to learn more about this link, listen to both of the podcasts, the one today and the previous one. My newsletter also contains a great deal more on this link than I presented today. So you can look at the various newsletters. If you subscribe to it, you can look in the archive and get all the previous newsletters. And I've written a number of them on this process. I've also put together a DVD lecture I did on diet and behavior that will further clarify this link for you between hypoglycemia behavioral and learning problems, particularly as relates to children. I would recommend that uh, everyone go to www.hypoglycemia.org, which is a website that was put together by uh, Ms. Roberta Ruggiero. Ms. Ruggiero has um, collected a a great deal of information about uh, hypoglycemia to help people with their diets and answer a lot of questions. She's also written an excellent book on uh, hypoglycemia. So I recommend that you go to this site for additional information. Well, if you've enjoyed listening to this week's podcast and would like to hear previous episodes of Blaylock Health Channel, go to the website at www.blaylockhealthchannel.com. Thank you for listening. The information contained within these programs is not intended to replace or contradict that of your physician. This information is for educational purposes only. 